you have a Bible and you haven't turned there already, I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have hardback black ones in the seats in front of you. You'd be welcome to use that. You can find John chapter 1 on page 833. Uh, If you're just joining us tonight or if you've been with us and need a refresher, over the last several weeks in our sermons, we've been looking at the whole storyline of the Bible by looking at the the theme of the presence of God with his people. This uh, thread runs throughout the the whole Bible and serves in in many ways as the driving force of the story. That is, the story of the Bible is the story of God's desire to dwell with his people. I said in the, the first sermon in this series that part of the reason that we're looking at the Bible through this lens is to put Christmas into context, to explain why it matters that Jesus was born. Why, is, why does it matter that Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us? Why is it significant that we sing, and we'll sing in a few moments, pleased as man with men to dwell? Jesus, our Emmanuel. Back in Genesis, we saw that human beings were created to dwell in perfect, unbroken fellowship with God. We were made for eternal life in God's presence. God who is life itself. But through our sin and rebellion against God, we've been cast from the presence of God and cut off from Him as the source of life. And instead of perfect fellowship with God, we and all people come into the world alienated from Him, under His righteous condemnation, dead in our trespasses and sins. But God is rich in mercy. And he did not abandon us, nor his earnest desire to dwell in perfect fellowship with us. And the story of the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 onward might be understood as the story of how God was working to redeem a people for his own possession, that he might dwell among them once again. But in order to do so, something would need to be done to deal with this chasm of sin that separates us from God. And this This is something we cannot do on our own. We cannot work or will our way back into fellowship with God. If people are ever to dwell in God's presence, it will not be because we have managed to get back to Him, but rather because He has come to us. The Old Testament ends with God promising to do just that. Tonight we're celebrating that what God promised to do, He has done. In Jesus, bringing together all these strands from across the entire Old Testament to find fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is God with us. And it's here that we find the very center, the the beating heart of the Bible's story. In Jesus, God has come to dwell with us, that we might come to dwell with him. In Jesus, God has come to dwell with us in order that we might come to dwell with him. We'll unpack that statement in two parts this evening. First, the claim that in Jesus, God has come to dwell with us. And then second, that he has done so in order that we might come to dwell with him. So first, in Jesus, God has come to dwell with us. 
We see this in John chapter 1, as we just read, and what the apostle has written about the one whom he calls the Word. We find later in the chapter, as we read, this is just another title for Jesus Christ. Starting in verse 1, we read that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, this, this one that John calls the Word, is both with God and is God. And if there's any question about whether this one called the Word was actually God himself, it's answered in verse 3 where John says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That is, the Word is the Creator. It's not that he is a creator, one among many, nor is he a creature that God merely employed to help him create everything. John says, all things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that is made. Sort of categorically excludes anything that is created. And so John is saying that the word is the uncreated creator. He's God himself. Now, left by themselves, these statements in the, in the first verses of John would be beautiful, but they would not be particularly controversial. What makes these claims so extraordinary is who the Word is identified as. And what we read in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what we call in theology the incarnation, or we might say the infleshing of God. God the Creator took on the nature of His creature. The Son of God, without any loss or change to His divinity, took on humanity. The Word who was with God, who is God, who created all things, was born in Bethlehem, and they called His name Jesus. And John says he dwelt among us. If you've been with us the past several weeks, that should sound like a familiar statement. It's hard to overstate the theological importance of that word dwelt. This is more than John just saying that Jesus lived among us. It's true. But there's other more common ways to say that in the original language, Greek. The word that John uses here is very specific. It's the verb form of the word for tabernacle. So we read, the word became flesh and became the tabernacle in our midst. The tabernacle, you remember, is the place where God in his glory dwelt among the people of Israel. And for John to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us is for him to say that Jesus is the true tabernacle, the fulfillment of everything that the tabernacle and later the temple was to be. We read this in the book of Colossians as well, where the Apostle Paul says that in Christ... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And again, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In John 2, if we had time, I would take us there and read through it. But Jesus makes this claim quite explicit when he's having a rather tense conversation at the temple in Jerusalem with the religious leaders 
And he says to them that he himself is the true temple. That if they destroy this temple, in three days he would raise it up. Jesus is the place where God manifests his glorious presence. When both the tabernacle and the temple were completed, the glory of God descended to dwell within. But the glory of God in Jesus' day was no longer in the temple in Jerusalem. Now John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. The glory of God that had been seen in the tabernacle and, and in the temple and the glory of God that had departed the temple during the days of Ezekiel because of the sin and idolatry and faithlessness of Israel. The, the glory of God that had been promised would come again to dwell among his people forever. The glory and fullness of God's presence, John says, we saw in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose and plan to dwell among us and fulfill his promises to us. But this fulfillment of God's promises happens in a most unexpected way. The God who wraps himself with light like a garment now wraps himself in human flesh and comes not to a temple nor to a palace, but to a manger. He comes not in power and great glory, but in fragile humanity. He who is immortal takes on himself mortality. But why? Why not come in power and great glory before the eyes of all, as he had when he came to dwell in the tabernacle and then again in the temple? Why, why veil himself in flesh? Why appear in such obscurity? The answer to that question has everything to do with the purpose for which he came. So we move to the second point that in Jesus, God has come to dwell with us in order that we might come to dwell with him. And in order for that to happen, we need more than just a teacher to instruct us how to be better people. That it happened throughout the Old Testament as God had sent over and over again to his people by the prophets, teaching them. We need more than just a virtuous example to follow. If that's all that Jesus was, a teacher and a, and a virtuous example, and some people think that is the case, if that's all that Jesus was, it would still leave the most fundamental problem human beings face unsolved. If God has come to dwell with us in order that we might come to dwell with him, it means that he will need to deal with that barrier that separates us from God and prevents us from dwelling with him in the unhindered fellowship that we were created for. That is, he will need to deal with our sin. And so the child born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas was not just called Emmanuel, God with us, but the angel told Joseph in the same passage, you will call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord saves because he will save his people from their sins. Not their circumstances, not the sins of others. He will save his people from their 
sins because that is what separates them from God. And saving us from our sins will require more than just Jesus' birth and life and teaching and example. The Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us is a a wondrous, miraculous, absolutely necessary truth, but it is by itself insufficient. If Jesus had only come to live among us, to be the dwelling place of God with us, it would still have left us dead in our sins and under condemnation. Christ humbled himself, he emptied himself by taking on human nature, dwelling among us, but not just so that he could be our example or our teacher or even our king, though he is most certainly all of those things. No, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The good shepherd came, as he says in John 10, that we might have life and have it abundantly. He desires, as he says in John 17, that we might be with him where he is, that we might see his glory, not veiled behind a curtain, but the fullness of his presence for which we were created, not just temporarily as the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, but eternally. And in order to do this, the good shepherd came to lay down his life for the sheep. The Word became flesh that He might become a sacrifice. Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple, not only in that He is the dwelling place of God's glory, but also in that He is the place where true atonement will be made for sin. It is for this reason that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that He might become, as we read further down in John chapter 1, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God himself took on flesh and blood and was born as a baby in Bethlehem in order that his flesh might be broken and his blood poured out as a substitute, taking on himself the divine death penalty that is rightly due to our sin. For only in so doing could human beings have eternal life in the presence of God. And so in Jesus, God came to dwell with us in order that he might die for us. Christmas is the prologue to the crucifixion. The cross is not the tragic end of the Christmas story. It's the very point of the Christmas story. What all the sacrifices at the tabernacle and the temple symbolized and foreshadowed but could never actually accomplish themselves, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus fulfilled and accomplished entirely. So that as he died, Jesus could cry out, not, I'll be back later to pay the rest, or I did my part, now it's up to you. He could cry, it is finished. The Apostle Paul says it this way in the book of Romans, God has done, completed, finished. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. That is, deal with our sin. How so? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. That is, in the flesh of Jesus. And because he did so, Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
In the death of Jesus, the word made flesh, God executed the sentence of condemnation due to our sin so that now those who entrust themselves to him will never be condemned. But Jesus' death does more than just release those who trust him from condemnation. He he also restores us to fellowship with God. He saves us not just from our sin, but for his presence. When Jesus died, the gospel writers tell us the veil of the temple, that thick curtain that blocked the way to the most holy place, signifying the the barrier of sin that kept humanity exiled from the presence of God. When Jesus died, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. And that's no coincidence. Heaven had ripped it apart. Using the imagery of Eden, Jesus had gone under the flaming sword of God's judgment on our behalf in order to open to us again the way to the tree of life, the very presence of God that we might live forever. The tearing of the curtain in the temple powerfully symbolized that through Jesus and his sacrificial atoning death in our place, humanity could again have access to the presence of God and the eternal life and blessing and joy that comes with it. The barrier of sin that had separated God and man had been dealt with once and for all by the sacrifice of Jesus. And in confirmation of the the completeness and the effectiveness of this sacrifice, just as Jesus had said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, three days later he rose from the grave, defeating death and opening to all who would come access to the presence of God and life everlasting. In Jesus, the Word made flesh, God has come to dwell with us in order that we might come to dwell with him. And the question, friends, that you must consider this Christmas is this. If if in Jesus God has indeed come to dwell with us, will you come to God through him? In Israel, the tabernacle was the only place of God's mediation with his people. It was the only place where people could meet God and worship Him rightly. And what the tabernacle foreshadowed has found fulfillment in Jesus, the true temple, the true priest, the true mediator, the true sacrifice. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so now, there is but one way to access the presence of God. One way to receive eternal life. One way to know God, and that is through Jesus. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus invites all to come to him. He invites all to come to God through him. Jesus says, come to me that you may have life. He says, come all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the book of Hebrews echoes these invitations saying, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that is, enter the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh and Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near to the very presence of God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Friends, the only way through the curtain, that is, into the eternal, life-giving presence of God, is through Jesus, the Word made flesh. It is through Jesus that you may receive forgiveness of sins and cleansing and eternal life. From His fullness you may receive grace upon grace for nothing of this salvation that is offered to you is a result of your sincere efforts or your inherent goodness. It is entirely the gift of God freely offered. But you must know that though it is freely offered, it is not automatic. Neither Jesus' birth nor his death nor his resurrection benefits those who reject his gracious invitation to come to him. We read it earlier in John 1 that Jesus came, but there are many to whom he came who did not receive him. But because Jesus is the only way back to the life-giving presence of God, rejecting him and his free offer of life would mean to remain eternally cast out of God's presence and under his righteous judgment. And so dwelling in the presence of God in eternal joy or dwelling away from the presence of the Lord in eternal punishment is entirely a matter of how you respond to Jesus. Jesus offers you life in his name. He refuses none who come to him. And though many reject him, as we read earlier, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those who hear his voice and follow him take the good shepherd to be the shepherd of their souls, and they shall never perish but shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden for their sin, waiting on the promise of one who would come to restore them to fellowship with God. And Israel, too, was cast out of God's presence for their sin and idolatry and longed for a Savior who would come to reconcile them to God. And now Jesus has come. God incarnate. He's given himself for us, risen again from death, and he says, I am able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through me. And he says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. In Jesus, God has come to dwell with us in order that we might come to dwell with him. And so, friends, I would invite you this Christmas 
to come and by faith take hold of that gracious gift of God's Son given for you and receive life in His name that you might dwell forever with Him in whose presence there is fullness of joy. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that in your abundant, rich mercy and steadfast love, you have fulfilled all of your promises in Jesus. Father, I pray again that we would see his glory and be quick to worship and praise and that we would Take him to be the shepherd of our souls that we might dwell in the house of God forever. And now, Lord, help us to rejoice that you have come, that we might dwell with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.